I do again want to mention the men's ministry Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Guys, if you can, it is uh, very, very challenging. Even just the first week and the first lesson and the first uh, discussion of that was uh, was very challenging. So I encourage you, uh, men, that to make that a priority if you can with your schedule. I know it's early, but you can sleep in the next day on Saturday, maybe. Last week we talked about disinfecting our brains. Um, we said that we our brains have picked up some lint, picked up some some dirt from the culture around us, and we need to do a little scrub. We need to get down on our hands and knees. We need to find where that is, and we need to hold a light up to it and say, is that really right? Does that really belong in my thinking? And so last week we talked about developing a biblical response to our own wrongdoing. And we talked about guilt, uh, subjective guilt versus objective guilt. And we talked about how that guilty feeling can either be something that destroys you and causes anxiety or it can be something that causes remorse, but then causes change in your life. It's constructive rather than destructive. And that type of guilt, Scripture says over and over again, is what we are supposed to feel when we sin. And we'd said that we needed to not just accept what the culture said about guilt and about our personal self-esteem, self-image, but we need to look to God's Word and reorient our thinking. Today, in the second of two weeks, we're going to examine another pervasive philosophy that the culture wants to foist upon us. The minimization of guilt, the celebration of good feelings, it's not something new, what we looked at last week. I think it's probably been around as long as people have been around. They try to minimize how how bad they feel about things and explain it away. But honestly, today's topic, if I'd brought it up even... 50, 60, 70 years ago, people would have sat in the audience with a wrinkled brow and said, really? We need to hear this? We all agree with you. It's no big deal. The culture has given us another imperative, something that we need to believe. They say that we do. We're talking about the world's obsession with what's new and what's young. What's new and what's young? You probably have seen this. Everywhere you go, what's new is held up as the gold standard. The young are held up as the gold standard. If you're old, if you have out-of-date technology, out-of-date shoes, out-of-date clothes, you're pretty much worthless to society. You need to be on the cutting edge. You need to be young. Otherwise, you're not going to get as far. And I I saw this myself... uh, a couple weeks ago. I was in the seminary. I was actually studying for the lesson on guilt. And I found myself looking at commentaries. You know, it's one thing to have, you know, a couple dozen commentary type books on your shelf. When you go to the seminary library, there's hundreds and hundreds of them just for one book of the Bible or just for one topic. So you have to scan the shelf. You have to go over to the computer, type in and try to narrow down exactly what you're looking for. But I was looking for Bible dictionaries because as I was looking about guilt and I was looking for good Bible dictionaries and I found myself falling into this pattern. How? Well, I was looking for the newest bindings. I was looking for more modern graphics just on, just on the binding because my mind said, well, if it's old, you know, I don't want to look at that Strong's Concordance. I don't want to look at that old systematic theology. I don't want to look at that 
you know, old version of the dictionary. I want the new stuff. I want the new one. And I caught myself. I, boy, Zach, because I knew what I was going to speak on this week. I said, you're doing the exact same thing. And, you know, to be honest, that's not the only way I do it. You're probably, a lot of you are this way too. I love technology. I fall into that line with, with Pastor Matt and Larry Castle as well. I like to read the, the, the blog Engadget. I don't know if any, anybody else reads that. But it's fascinating. They, they track different trends, new products. They review things. You know, I like that. I like to know what's on the cutting edge. I, I'm not, I can't afford it, but I like to know what's, what's modern, what's current. We really do love our gadgets in this day and age. Um, computers just keep getting smaller and faster. It's interesting that you know, most modern smartphones are more powerful than the desktops of just a few years ago. You know, the, uh, the company Apple, I'm not bashing Apple. They've done a really good job marketing their products. And their, pro- their quality of their products, the iPhone and uh, the iPad and others, is very high. But it's not just the quality of the product. They have cultivated this techno lust. And it's not just in geeks, it's in everyday people. That's why the line when an iPhone gets released or the iPad got released or the iPad 2, the lines are out the door. And they're not just some nerdy 30-year-old guy who never left his parents' basement. They're your average Joe, average Jane, who have just bought into this, this concept that Apple from Cupertino, California gave, which is, we have the coolest new products. Our products are better than anything else. You need an iPhone. You need an iPad. And technology is reaching into so many areas of our lives now. I thought of just a few. Uh, you know, devices like your refrigerator and your washing machine, if you haven't seen these already, they're being fitted with tablet computers built right into your, tel- or your, into your uh, washing machine or into your refrigerator that help you get the optimal efficiency and they remember your settings. I've even seen a toilet, no joke, that had a tablet built into it and heated the seat according to exactly the last, you know, each person's preference. You just typed in your name, you logged in, and the toilet remembered your your preferences. But hey, let's, let's get a little more mainstream. Golf balls, golf clubs, they don't look anything like they did 50 years ago. Golf technology has come so far an average Joe on the links can hit it about as far as a pro could 100 years ago just because of the technology, the, the, the composites they use and the materials in those golf balls and golf clubs. TVs, your TV might do this. Mine does it through a wire. But some TVs connect directly to the Internet and you can pull not just your, your cable TV, but you can actually pull Pandora or Netflix or all kinds of other internet programs right onto your home TV. And some of you have probably seen this as well, the smartphone technology where it'll enable you to just swipe your phone and pay for your groceries that way. It is coming, probably in 2012, and it's already fitted in some, but you'll be able to use your smartphone like a credit card. It'll have all your information on it. We love our, our technology. We love our gadgets. We love what's new. Let me take it another step closer to home, maybe, for some of you. We love our fashion. We love the newest styles. And let me tell you, the culture has told us, you have to have this latest line of clothing. A couple hundred years ago, they didn't have the fall line 
They had the lifeline. This is what you'll wear your entire life until it wears out. But now it's like this is the fall, 2007, fall 2011 line. This is the new thing. You don't want to be caught wearing last year's fashion or last year's hairstyle. All I have to do is go to Taylor and I see hairstyles from like 20, 30, 40 years ago. Sorry if, that, if anybody lives there. But we do that, don't we? We chuckle at people who their dress is a little bit out of touch or their hair is a little bit out of touch or they're wearing a beard or not wearing a beard, you know, or their shoes. Oh, boy, that person's just hopeless. And, we, and maybe we're not the most on the cutting edge person, but we might look at someone else Maybe we don't have a plasma TV, but then we go into the home of the person who just has a little 12-inch box and we say, oh, wow, you really need to get with the times. We love what's new, what's cool. And there's countless other fads and trends that we tend to buy into. You need a shiny new car, not just a clunker. You haven't had coffee until you've tried our all-new mocha frappe latte steamer on ice. You have to see the new Ben Stiller movie. Or you have to not see the new Adam Sandler movie. It's terrible. This may seem all relatively harmless. Tastes, preferences, and it is. Until we become addicted to it. Until we become materialists who can't stop thinking about the next new phone I'm going to get or I have to get that new fashion, or I have to get my hair cut and colored this new way, or I have to get the newest golf set of golf clubs. It's not just new products for us to buy, friends. It's new thinking, too. The world wants us to buy into the new products, but it also wants to, us to buy into new ways of thinking. Well, we know... That now, now we know that homosexuality is normal and that dusty old Christian Bible just kept people oppressed for so many years. A big part of this culture's rejection of the old, it's not just a, a, a craving for the new, it's a rejection of the old too. Have you ever seen, I think it was in India, just massive, just a, a, a landfill full of old computers, maybe MS-DOS or, or Windows 95 computers that nobody uses anymore. They're just stacked up. Piles of silicon and chips and glass that don't do anybody any good anymore. Old clothing goes to Salvation Army. Old thinking gets kicked out the door too. Old traditional values get mocked as unsubstantial, as unworthy of the modern age. To be honest... Old people are looked down on too. And I see not only like that we, like the culture, tend to be obsessed with what's new and what's cool, but we tend to be obsessed with youth. That's really what I want to focus on today. Obsessed with youth. Over the last couple of generations, going back at least in the 1950s, probably before, but society figured out two things about young people. The first was that a lot of money could be made by advertising directly to young people's tastes. 
a lot of money. And secondly, if reached early enough, kids could be trained to think a certain way. Now, we always knew that, but the culture grabbed onto that. And the culture said, we're not just going to market to adults. We're actually going to have children's commercials. We're going to have children's TV shows. We're going to build an entire multi-billion dollar industry around reaching young people. You know, they didn't do that a couple hundred years ago. That's a relatively new invention in the 20th century. So if you've watched the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon recently, as I do, I have a two-year-old, you see these commercials where they just cultivate this lust. You have to have the newest doll. You have to have the newest Play-Doh. It's just, there's so many different things that the culture tells our kids, want this, get this, it'll make you happy. Not only that, not only does the world want to get a hold of young people's minds, all of our minds really, but youth is held up as the gold standard, as I said earlier. People whose youth is in their rearview mirrors still tend to hold on to that value. They've bought into that as well. And so the way that people look, their external physical beauty has just been idolized. It's exalted to the level of almost worship. We revere young people simply because they're good-looking and full of vitality. So-called celebrities. I'll name a couple names. Paris Hilton, they're Kardashians. They're not famous because they're talented or special. Far from it. And it's not even because they're rich. Because older rich people don't get nearly the same level of attention. They're famous because they're young. They're famous because they claim to be good-looking because they have, the, they have the look that society wants. That's why they're held up, and, and that's why they make the newspapers. That's why you see them on Yahoo when you try to log into your mail. Because people care about youth. It's an obsession. Not only do we tend to exalt the younger generation merely for how they look, for their beauty, but we seek to capture that youth for ourselves with decidedly mixed results, right? So Americans spend billions of dollars each year on makeup, cosmetic surgery, gym memberships, dietary supplements, trendy new clothes, new toys like boats or sports cars, anything to make us look and feel younger. Why? Why are we fighting a losing battle? Why do we care so much? Why do we invest so much of our time and attention into preserving a state of immaturity, a look of youth? Why do we want to act younger than we are? It's at least partly, friends, because we've bought into society's values. We're convinced that we have to look young. We have to act young. That's where the real fun is. That's where the real value is. That's where the action's happening. Youth is everything. Not only does society obsess about how young people look, but also about how they think. It's exalted the way that young people think to the standard that everyone else has pretty much got to follow along with. Several generations ago, children were to be seen and not heard. Now, they must be heard. You're a bad parent if you don't hear them. They've been encouraged since they were toddlers to express themselves. 
and question authority and be their own person without letting anyone else tell them what to do. So naturally, the younger generation lost respect for not only authority, but pretty much for all older people. And as those kids and teens turned into young adults, they maintained, they kept that suspicion of older authority figures. Those youthful attitudes of independence and self-centeredness and disrespect for older people have moved into the mainstream of our culture, haven't they? It's not just an attitude for the young, it's the standard. What I think has happened, at least in society, is that we started lifting up the young generation as the best and the highest priority. It wasn't that children worked alongside their parents to support the family. It was that parents worked to support their children. It's a subtle change, not entirely wrong, but it is a change that says parents exist to make children happy. Society exists to make children happy. We put a burden on those kids that they were not able to bear. And as those pampered, irresponsible kids grew up, they became pampered, irresponsible adults who did an even worse job or are doing an even worse job of raising their own children. It's gotten bad. It's gotten really, really bad. Children are exalted. They're idolized. Young people, the young generation, they call it the Y generation, I think, those born between 1975 and 2000. And that's that group that more than anyone else, at least in the recent past, grew up with this sense of entitlement and disrespect and an attitude that, and I'm part of this generation, so I speak from firsthand experience, an attitude that said, I deserve, I'm not going to give. I deserve, you need to give me. You need to provide for me. We saw this a little bit with all the uh, looting and horrific behavior in Britain a few weeks ago. They were young people in their teens and 20s who were just uh, uncontrollable. And they took advantage of a bad situation to let their innermost desires out. And their innermost desires were to rampage and loot and take advantage of society because they've been told their whole life society owes you. Your parents owe you. As we'll see, the church owes you. Friends, we cannot go along with this trend. If I haven't made that clear already, we cannot go along with this. The world will keep ramming down our throats this supremacy of what's cool, what's new, the young unless we consciously make an effort to resist that philosophy. And so we tend to idolize the new and the cool. We tend to idolize youth, just like the culture. But we have to make a stand. We cannot idolize youth in three different areas. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. I want to give you three areas in our broad life that we have to draw the line and say, no, I'm not going to idolize the young generation. I'm not going to adopt their thinking. I'm not going to, as Pastor Ken said this morning, cater to them 
three areas. The first is in our own personal lives. In your heart, in your thinking, in my heart, in my thinking. We cannot afford to spend our lives in the pursuit of looking and or feeling younger. Youth is not our only goal. Somehow, we've bought into the notion that only the young have fun, and consequently that we should just let them have their fun. So in order to enjoy life, we have to act and think and speak like people who are 10, 20, 30 years our junior. We've let them set the pace. But the Lord says that we are to flee youthful lusts. Flee youthful lusts. The latest fads and gadgets are just like dust. They're, they're here today and they blow away tomorrow. There is a solid, a permanent, a valuable alternative to just pursuing after youth and the modern trends. Look at Proverbs 1 and 2. We're going to read some verses in Proverbs 1 and 2 that I think wise old Solomon probably saw some trends toward this even in his day, although I, I am absolutely sure it was not to the level that it is now. Maturity is highly underrated in our day. There's something in each of us that doesn't want to grow up. But God wants us to pursue something much more precious. And he used King Solomon to tell us what it is. Look at the first seven verses of Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Then let's look right into chapter 2, first six verses there. Really, the first nine chapters of Proverbs establish the value of wisdom and appeal to us, appeal to the world, go after God's wisdom. I encourage you to read the first nine chapters if you haven't recently. But again, the first six verses of chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. There are two things in each of those, those chunks that stood out to me as it applies to our message today. The first was, in the first section, it talked about the young, the youthful. In the second one, it also said, my son, the next generation that's coming up. Solomon was concerned that they pursue something. What was it? But well, we saw it mentioned in multiple different ways. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, insight, perception. And each of those passages ended with the fear of the Lord. 
And you've heard me say this before, but the fear of the Lord, I think I mentioned it last week, the fear of the Lord is devotion to God. Devotion to His values, to His principles as laid out in God's Word. And that devotion expresses itself in everyday obedience, in making the right choices, in seeking after God's will, and applying the truths of Scripture to your everyday choices. That's wisdom. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have to have a right relationship with God. You have to be devoted to Him before you can be truly wise. And the implication here is that when Solomon talks to the younger generation, when he says, the youthful need this, my son, you need this, the implication is, when you're young, this doesn't come naturally. The young don't have the market curbed on what's really valuable in this world. It's something that comes over time, over study, over diligent effort to be godly. Maturity in Christ is our highest goal. It's what brings glory to the Father. It may be tempting to think, well, that's a good ideal, but how do I get there? How do I attain this wisdom? Let me read some verses that are not new to you. James 1, 4 through 5. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But, the implication is, but if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. James has a lot in common with Proverbs, as commentators have mentioned, but the point is, seek after God's wisdom, not the world's values, not what culture says is important for you right now. Now, let me also say, let me shift gears a little bit here. We said that we, we can't idolize youth in our own personal lives. But I tend to think there's probably a lot of people here who say, I'm not really that trendy. I, I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to do what's right. I don't really think I idolize youth. I, I don't really care what's going on in the culture. I, I don't think I have to have the latest fashion. So this doesn't apply to me, right? we can still fall into tra the trap of idolizing youth in our children, in our children, our kids, and our grandkids. What we tend to do is center our entire existence around our kids, making them happy, making them comfortable, giving them the best opportunity to succeed. That's not necessarily bad, but as I've said in the past, our children and grandchildren are only part of the mission that God has given us. An important part, to be sure. But they are not your only mission. There is so much more that God has for you than just your children, just your grandchildren. Let me give you two ways that I see that we tend to idolize our kids. And I'm including myself in this as much as anyone else. Even if you don't have a problem with following after the cult of youth, you still can be at danger of idolizing youth. One way is that we do not instill a good work ethic in our children. That's a danger. A study in 2010 showed that only 33% of teens ages 16 through 19 are employed or actively looking for work. You know what the percentage was in 1980? 
60%. Now, let me qualify that. The enrollment rate in high school and college is much higher. It's about 10% higher than it was back then. So more kids are in school. That's a good thing. And also, kids are very busy. We acknowledge that they have more on their plate now than they may have at any time, at least in American society. They have tons of extracurricular activities. They have tons of classes and a huge homework load, and there's tremendous pressure to succeed in athletics, music, academics. So I understand a lot of kids, it is not the best choice for them to work in that 16 through 19 period. But at the same time, if we as parents are concerned most about preparing our children for life and ministry down the road as adults, we need to be sure that they know the value of being industrious. That's difficult because a kid might have to, I'm not saying must, but I'm saying a kid might have to, to learn the value of work, they might have to forego that traveling athletic team. They might not be able to take that college prep class. They might not be able to join that exclusive music ensemble. But friends, we're not our kids' best friends, right? That's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to guide them. We're supposed to nurture them. We're supposed to help put them on the right path. Even if that's not the most popular decision with that kid at the time. Another way that we can really, and this is very subtle, that we can idolize our children, idolize youth, is by letting their emotions, their schedules, their preferences affect our ministry to others. As I said, you have a mission to others besides just your children, just your grandchildren. Maybe a grandmother is so consumed with satisfying her petulant granddaughter that she spends the money that she and her husband were saving for a much-needed vacation. Maybe a dad sacrifices Sunday attendance at three, for three months straight so that he can get his son into that exclusive soccer league. God does expect us to meet our family obligations. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But friends, I do think the tendency in our culture is to be consumed with your children. And God is saying, there's something more for you and for me. You know, there are two common consequences when a parent or a grandparent is obsessive about their kids. Remember a few weeks, a couple months ago, Sunday morning, I preached about obsessive versus dismissive parents. You know, we can be obsessive about our kids, trying to, to control everything in our lives, just and manipulate everything so everything just turns out just perfect, or we can be dismissive and let them go their way and careen off the right path, and we don't really care because we're too busy with our own pursuits. Either one is sinful. But that obsessive extreme, I tend to see that kids turn out often two ways with obsessive parents. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you'll, you see this a lot too. They tend to either follow the same pattern, which is, well, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa are all about me, so I'll be all about me too. Now, they may not say that out loud. In fact, I'm sure they don't. They probably don't even realize they're thinking that way. But we've trained them. We've trained them that life revolves around you, like the planets around a sun. We're here to make you happy. And that kid takes that attitude maybe with them the rest of their life. People around them, their spouse, 
their friends, their teachers, their coworkers. They exist to make me happy. But it may be a kid doesn't turn out that self-centered. Maybe they adopt a different approach, which is instead of being self-centered, they become family-centered. Sounds good, right? The problem is, as they become family-oriented, as they grow up, they turn into the same obsessive parents that their parents were. And they, comp- they continue the cycle because they pour everything they have into their child or children or grandchildren just like their parents did. Who knows how that kid turns out? Whether they are self-centered or family-centered, I would say that's a failure because we're not called to raise children in the nurture and admission of themselves or the nurture and admission of the culture or even our nurture and our admonition. We're not supposed to make little cookie-cutter kids that look just like us. Our goal is that the next generation will look like Christ, that they will see and savor him with everything they have. The best way to do that, the place that kids need to be in order to keep growing in Christ-likeness is the local church. That's the third area of danger where we tend to idolize the youth. First one was in our own hearts, pursuing youth. The second one was in our children or grandchildren, more of an indirect idolization, but still dangerous. And the third is in our churches. I read a couple articles, recent articles, for this. Christian Century, published August 2010, gave some interesting details about what the researchers saw as the emerging new religion of that Y generation, the like 1975 or 80 through 2000. This researcher called it MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Deism means they believe there is a God. Moralistic means they believe that God wants us to do good. It's not the gospel, but they want us, they, God wants us to do good deeds. The therapeutic is they believe that God wants us to feel good about ourselves. So you have a massive generation of younger people who believe that, yeah, there's a God. Yeah, he wants us to do good. Not defined by God's word, but he wants us to do good deeds. He wants us to be unselfish, you know, do community service acts, charitable acts. But he's not really involved in my life. He doesn't really care what I do. And, you know, he doesn't really care how I turn out. We're all going to end up in heaven anyway. That's the essence of what this article said about moralistic therapeutic deism. That is the religion by default of so many children, and not just children, but young people, 20s, even 30s today. This alternative faith exists, the article said, in and around traditional Christian circles. It's becoming the postmodern substitute for Christianity. And I need to read you this quote. It, It feeds on and gradually co-opts, if not devours, established religious traditions. The author went on to say, American young people have learned a well-intentioned but ultimately banal version of Christianity that's been offered to them in American churches. The point of the article was that this, they called it not quite Christian. It's nice, it's feel-good, 
It's not atheist, so hey, hey, that's something, right? But it promotes self rather than God. God is a tool to make me happy. I'm not a tool in his hands. He's a tool in my hands. And friends, unfortunately, as I talk about idolizing youth, and Pastor mentioned it a little bit earlier. Let me get, he said the general thing was watering down the gospel, changing our message to cater to the culture. Well, let me give you that specific today. I didn't know what he was going to say, but it fits hand in hand. The specific is that we cater to the younger generation. We re- radically reinvent our Christianity, our faith, to fit them. It's, not, it's more than just being a good host. Hey, we, we want to make the kids comfortable when they come in, right? It's about, as the, one more quote, the article said, it, it grows out of our need as a church to be liked and approved. Is that a need of the church, to be liked and approved by this younger generation? No, it's not. One example is the TNIV Bible. Not the NIV Bible, not even the new 2011 NIV Bible, but the TNIV Bible was widely released in 2005. And it was, I would say, properly avoided by most conservatives. Here's the reason why. Zondervan, a Zondervan press release said, with advancements in biblical scholarship, updated language, and gender clarity... The TNIV is a new translation that will engage today's younger generation with God's word. They catered to young adults who are more sensitive about gender roles. So what they did, and I haven't read much in the TNIV. I'm taking people's word on it at this point. I've seen it a little bit. They eliminate as many gender differences as they possibly could. And the the problem with that is that conservative evangelical circles understood that's not right. You're taking that a little too far. And that's why we had the 2011 NIV that came out. It's kind of a hybrid of the old NIV and that TNIV in 2005. But my point in that is not to get on a a discourse about versions. The point is that Zondervan, which is a fairly conservative Christian publishing company, made a choice to put a whole version of the Bible out there, a version of the NIV, so to speak, that would soften things down, that would appeal more to the younger generation. Another example, I read another article, Christianity Today, uh, one year ago this month, September 2010. It's a new kind of church. Some are calling it the emergent church or the hipster church. These churches are large, they're very white, they're very urban, and they're trendy. The article, Christianity Today, says that these churches check off all the important items on the hipster checklist, like giving the okay to cussing and drinking, emphasizing environmental awareness, social justice, and using modern technologies like Twitter. I'm not putting all those things in the same boat. I'm simply describing that's what these hipster churches are valuing because the hipsters that they're marketing themselves to value that. But one issue... But Christianity Today, which is not a conservative publication, but Christianity Today pointed out a major problem with these churches. It's that they tend to develop the same flaws as their target audience. They're transient. They focus on one thing for a little while, and then they focus on something else. They can't stay locked into one goal or one mission or one philosophy. 
hipster culture, by its definition, is very radically against the status quo. It's rebellious. It wants to keep moving to the newest and latest thing. And attempts, Christianity Today said, and I agree, attempts to make the church cool for today's culture are destined for failure. What happens to Christianity, the article said, when it becomes, like hipsterdom, a chameleon of fleeting fashion and transient trends? It's not what the church was called to do. But there is a legitimate question. I close with this. How is the church supposed to relate to younger, the younger generation? How are individual Christians supposed to relate to younger generation of people who maybe distrust all the traditions that we tend to hold dear? Well, we do need to reach them. We do also need to be open to new ideas, to some tweaks, to some new philosophies. We evaluate it by God's word, but we don't lock in and calcify into something from 50 years ago just because it's the way we've always done it. We have the danger, though, that we will redefine our identity in Christ in order to better relate to the younger generation. Pastor talked about how we trim the offensive parts of the gospel. Uh, We swallow sinful practices instead of rejecting them as ungodly. When we require no sacrifice from ourselves or from the younger generation, we've unintentionally taught them how little Christianity really means. And they scoff, rightly so, at that pathetic, weak, neutered brand of Christianity. And they go find something else. Though they may not admit it, young adults need the older generation. They need their counsel. And so, friends, let me really encourage you today. If you say, well, I'm not part of that younger generation. I don't get all those ideas. I don't, I'm not a trendy you know, hipster at all. Let me encourage you. We need you. We need your maturity. We need your counsel. We need your wisdom. The last thing that you should do is turn away from those kids because they've got an extra earring, because they wear different clothes, because they listen to music that you're not fond of. The last thing you should do, other than adopting all that yourself, is to turn away from those kids, from that young generation. We need you. We can't do it on our own. We're trying now, in this stage, in the teens, young college, 20s, we're formulating our philosophy for the rest of our life. The point is not to become cool so you can relate to that Y generation. You can't out-hip a hipster. But you can show them what life is really all about. You can show them that what's old is actually fresh and new. The gospel. You can live the gospel. You can speak the gospel. You can show them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what every generation needs. We're not that different. Every generation needs to know what it's like to live a gospel-centered life. Don't follow after the trends, young or old today. Don't reject things out of hand. Don't swallow them without thinking. Live a gospel-centered life 
and reach out to those around you. Like pastor's been saying, we need to serve one another in love. Serve other generations besides your own. Leave, leave you with that challenge. This week, try to serve someone who's 30 years younger or older than you. Try to reach out to someone who is so different from you in the way they think, in their clothes, that you think, well, we don't have that much in common. If you're believers, you have the most important thing in common, which is Jesus Christ. It's close.